Good morning. If you have Bibles, you'll want to turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8 this morning. Let's go ahead and uh, turn to the Lord in prayer. Father God, how appropriate it is to sing about what you have done, who you are, your greatness. And Father, I think in Joshua 3 and 4 about the stones of remembrance where the Israelites are to build an altar so that they never forget the things that you have done. And as we look at the past, it gives us courage for the present and the future. And Father, we do that today as we continue our study in the Acts of the Apostles, which is really the Acts of Christ. We see what you've done in the life of Philip, in the life of the Samaritans. And we ask, Father, that you would repeat it in our lives. Father, may your word empower us, encourage us, strengthen us. To the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, Billy Graham was on a plane... He was sitting in an aisle, and just a few seats across was John Belk. At the time, John Belk was the mayor of Charleston, and kind of in between them was a guy named Doug. And Doug was inebriated. He was making a fool of himself. He was boisterous and flirtatious. And it actually even tried to pinch a couple stewardesses as they walked by. Boorish behavior in every way. And John Belk thought, well, someone's got to intervene. So he said to this inebriated guy, Doug, he said, pointing at Billy Graham, do you know who that is? And Doug said, no, I have no idea. He said, well, that's Billy Graham. And immediately Doug got up and he walked across. He said, put her there, Reverend. You can't imagine how much my life has changed because of your preaching. (laughs) Now, I don't know what Billy Graham said after that. But I can imagine what he thought. And I think he might have thought this. Maybe his life has changed. Maybe... His behavior was this extreme, and now it's this extreme. Maybe he's in the process of sanctification. Maybe he truly is a brother. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But if God has used my words, praise the Lord. Billy Graham understood well. His job is to be faithful. It's God's Spirit's job to change lives. And that's a lesson I want to remind myself of. My job is to be faithful. One of the heroes of the faith, I think, is Jeremiah. Jeremiah not only wrote Jeremiah, he wrote Lamentations. Lamentations is, I think, the most discouraging book in the Bible. It's laments. It's like the dozen or so lament psalms. There's actually more than that, but about a dozen that are focused on lament of the psalms. It's just a discouraging book because his life was discouraging. 
I don't know how long Jeremiah preached four different kings. I know that. We don't have any converts to speak of. We don't have a congregation that's very well known. He made no impact that was visible. He was thrown down a cistern or a well left to die. He was a man that was abused time and time again. But he did what God called him to do. He was faithful. Our job is to be faithful. It's God's Spirit's job to change lives. Today we're going to talk about a man who is faithful. His name is Philip. I want to pick up at the second half of the first verse of Acts 8 and read from 1 to 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. At this point, it probably reminded you of something. Back in Acts 1.8, it says that we are to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And the church did nothing about it. And now God's going to send persecution, scatter the church, and a lot of the church is going to go do something, but remarkably, the apostles are not. Except the apostles is not high praise. It's embarrassment. Devout men buried Stephen. Remember, he was martyred, the first known Christian martyr, and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, of course, Saul would come in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus to a saving knowledge of Christ. He remained Saul, by the way, for about a decade after. He only takes the name Paul when God taps his shoulder and makes him an apostle to the Gentiles. Saul is a Jewish name, so he takes a Gentile or Roman name. He names himself Paul, which corresponds to Saul because he's going to reach Gentiles. That's why we have the name change. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. As you and I begin in verses 1 to 4, we're reminded of the martyrdom of Stephen. And then we're reminded of Saul, who is ravaging the church. That shouldn't surprise us. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't say might be or could be. He said we will be persecuted. We should not be surprised that we are living in a nation that is becoming post-Christian. We should not be surprised that we are living in a nation in which Many people call evil good and good evil. We've been told, we've been warned. We should praise God for 250 years in which we haven't faced this. And of course, we work for change. We pray for change. We vote for change. We run for elected office. But we should not be shocked 
if our nation slides away from a Judeo-Christian heritage. We're going to work to change that. We're going to vote to change that. Yes and amen, but don't be shocked in the areas that are not changed because we've been warned all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we're given an illustration from Saul and the text says he ravaged the church. That word ravaged is actually a word that was used of a boar who would find an animal or a human and rip them to shreds, a wild animal. It's a violent word. In fact, it's in the imperfect tense, which means that Saul ravaged the church and ravaged the church and ravaged the church and kept on ravaging the church. That's what Saul was like. He gives us a sad summation in Galatians 1.13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. Saul was bent on destroying the bride of Christ, which is the church. And we shouldn't be surprised when we have some political foes or business foes, or societal foes, the desire to ravage the church. We've been warned. God says it's going to happen. And in fact, it's happened in many parts of the world, and it's starting to happen in our part of the world as well. That should not surprise us. What should surprise us, what should alarm us, is that we've now gotten to fighting amongst ourselves in a way that has not been typical in American history. We now have individuals who regularly blog or give us podcasts, and they're always criticizing this church and that seminary and this music, and, and there's no end to their criticism, and there's no end to their hatred folded against the church, the bride of Christ. That should alarm us. And we should be wise enough to listen to godly voices. And if somebody is incessantly critical, incessantly angry, there is a difference between being discerning and judgmental. And some of the church has moved into that second camp. And we ought not be a part of that. Yes, we are to be Bereans who heard what was taught and then went home and compared what was taught against the word of God. We ought to be like that. But we are talking about the bride. The bride has always had problems. It had problems in Jesus' day. And he still called the church the bride. His bride. And so we work to purify the bride. But we aren't to constantly attack the bride as, as though God has given us the spiritual gift of criticism. Saul should not surprise us. He's outside the church and he's ravaging the church. Notice what God does. Our sovereign God is able to use the evil that is out there without tainting his perfection and holiness even for his purposes. Isn't that what he does with Saul? He uses the evil of Saul 
to fulfill his purpose from Acts 1.8, that you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He gives that commission. The church does nothing about it. And God allows Saul and others to ravage the church, pushing out, not the apostles, not yet, but pushing, pushing out some of the lay individuals into Judea and Samaria. In addition to that, God lights a fire among the laity that they can use the spiritual giftedness that God has entrusted to them. If you are a Christ follower, if you believe in Jesus Christ as personal Savior, at the moment in which you accepted Christ, God gave you, he gave me, he gave us one or more spiritual gifts, always to bring glory to God and to be used in the bride, in the church. He might have given you teaching or leadership or mercy or helps or service or knowledge or wisdom or discernment or teaching or evangelism or hospitality or giving. I don't know what spiritual gift or gifts he gave you, but he gave us gifts always to be used within the body of Christ to bring glory to God's name. And we have Philip, who no longer has the apostles by his side, who is pushed out into Judea and Samaria, and he begins to use the spiritual giftedness entrusted to him. Now, from this point on to really the end of the book of Acts, almost every time we come to somebody, we're going to have to define who they are. Because we have names that occur multiple times. It's kind of like if you said, I'm looking for Pastor Jeff. And I know you're looking for Jeff Weiss. Everybody else is too. And I'm thinking, what about me? But if you just say you're looking for Pastor Jeff, we got two of them. Well, we got more than one Philip. This Philip is not the Apostle Philip. We have a Philip who is one of the 12. This isn't him. This Philip is from Acts chapter 6. He's a lay guy who's given charge along with six other guys of the Koopa, which is kind of like the benevolent fund. They're men filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were empowered to help out the division between the Hebraic and the Grecian Jews. You remember that account. That's this Philip. He's a garden variety believer like you and like me. He hasn't gone to Bible college. He hasn't gone to seminary. He doesn't have a doctorate. He's not an apostle. He's just a regular guy who loves Jesus, who's been gifted by Jesus and begins to use the giftedness that God entrusts to him. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 puts it this way. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He gave them why? To equip the saints, to equip the laity, to equip us for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so the apostles began to equip and then God forced the church out. And in the forcing of the church out, Philip began to use the spiritual giftedness that was entrusted to him. In this regard, I think of Dr. Edward Beecher. Dr. Edward Beecher pastored in the 19th century, in the 1800s, in Boston, Park Street Church. And he was once asked, why is Park Street Church so influential in Boston? And Dr. Beecher said this. 
Every Sunday morning, I preach to 450 people. And then on Monday, those 450 people live out God's word in our city. Now, I'm going to preach to way more than 450 people today. Three or four times that. And it's our job, your job, my job, to take the word of God to be Bereans, make sure that what I say is true, and the, the parts that I say that are true, we go out into the areas that God sends us out to, to live out his word among us. That's what Philip, the layperson, the layman, does. Let me read verse 5 again. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now at this point, I talked a little bit about Samaria last week, so it could feel a little bit redundant, but I might say some different things. I'm going to back up about a thousand years prior to this text, to about a thousand B.C., and we have the division of the 12 tribes. And of course, we have the 10 northern tribes. They're going to be called Israel. And the two southern tribes are going to be called Judah. Rather than one nation, we have now two. And as I mentioned last week, those 10 northern tribes, they're disobedient. They have about 20 kings, all evil. And in 722, actually 725 to 722, during that span, the Assyrians come. God allows the Assyrians to come and ransack first under Shalmaneser and then Sargon II. And at that palace that we have found that Andrew talked a little bit about last week, there is an inscription that says that during that battle, Sargon II carried away 28,280 Jews. So he defeats them and he takes almost 27,500 Jews out of the nation. And remember then some of the Assyrians relocate. And they relocate there in West Manasseh and Ephraim. And they begin to intermarry. And now we have a new group, half Jew, half Assyrian. And they take on the name Samarian. Why? Because the capital of the 10 northern tribes is Samaria. And these are the vanquishers. And so their offspring, they're going to name after the capital. They're going to be called Samaritans. So they intermarry. You remember Joshua. Now we're going back another 500 years and we're going into the conquest. When Joshua comes into the promised land, he says to the Jews, this is so important that we get this right. He says to the Jews, do not intermarry with the people, whether they're Philistines, Assyrians, Hittites, Girgashites, Perizzites. It doesn't matter. You don't intermarry with them. Why? It has nothing to do with skin color. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with culture. Nothing. Think of Moses. Moses, Numbers 12, marries a woman from Cush, a Cushite, mentioned twice. Why? Because he is like light olive and she is the darkest black skin in the world. God doesn't care about skin color. 
you think of Priscilla and Aquila. One is light olive skin. The other is very black. God doesn't care about skin color. Or in that case, even socioeconomic because one is of the royal family and one is a commoner between Priscilla and Aquila. Look it up. It's true. That's not the issue. Why does Joshua say, do not intermarry? He's talking about faith. He's talking about faith. He's talking about what Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 7, 1. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. For what has Christ to do with Belial? He doesn't care about your skin color or your ethnicity or your culture. He cares about the faith and he wants people of like faith to marry because he knows that missionary dating and missionary marriage doesn't work out very often. And more often than not, the believer compromises and it's not all that often that the unbeliever comes to faith. I know you can come up to me and give me examples. I can too. You can give me examples of missionary dating that worked. That's grace. But I know more many more times when people would go into these relationships, I say, please don't do it. Oh, I'm going to be strong in my faith. And, and they're no longer going to church. They're no longer bowing before the Lord. And, and that's a much more common deal. And so what we have is the 10 Northern tribes that are intermarrying and it has nothing to do with culture, race, or color. It has to do with believer and unbeliever. And then you have the two southern tribes. They're going to last an extra 120 years because they're actually going to have six godly kings. And then the Babylonians are going to come under Nebuchadnezzar and later the Medo-Persian Empire as well. And they'll be carried into captivity for 70 years. They're going to be attacked in 605, 597, and 586 B.C., and many are going to be captured and carried into captivity. That's Daniel, that's Shadrach, that's Meshach, Abednego. They're all in captivity. But they refuse to intermarry. And so when they are finally released and come back into the land that God gave them, and they're led by Ezra and Zerubbabel and Haggai, they rebuild the temple. And some Samaritans say, hey, how, how about we help out? And they said, no. No, we can't have you help out. Why? Because the Samaritans have denied all but five books of the Bible. They only hold Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as Scripture. Nothing else. They're looking for a different Messiah. They're worshiping a very different false god. And so they cannot take part in the building of the temple. And then when Nehemiah comes back in 444 B.C. to build the walls of Jerusalem and you have Several, Sambalat and Tobiah, or they want to, to help. And, and Nehemiah says, no, you're, you're idolaters. You can't help to build the walls around God's city. And so we have the Samaritans building their own temple on Mount Gerizim in 350. And we have all sorts of, of hostility. When the Seleucid Empire under Antiochus Epiphanes IV, that is one of the most vile dictators in history. When he comes into the promised land and he goes into the Holy of Holies and casts bones into it to defy it, 
Do you know who sides with Antiochus Epiphanes IV against the Jews? The Samaritans. So militarily, politically, these individuals are very much on the opposite side of the Jews. There has been hostility for 700 years. But Philip, but Philip, he's not talking about missionary dating and missionary marriaging. He's talking about people made in the Imago Dei and the image of God. And Philip risks what nobody else will risk. And he goes into a land and he begins to preach Christ to people who are very far from Christ. How far? During that time period of Antiochus Epiphanes IV in the temple in Mount Gerizim area. They actually set up an image to Zeus, the Roman Jupiter. Zeus would be the Greece, the highest false god. Jupiter is the counterpart in the Roman pantheon. That's how far these people are from the Lord. And yet we have Philip who said they are made in the Imago Dei. They are made in the image of God. They matter to God. All people matter to God. And so he will risk really his own life and go into Samaria to preach the gospel. Now we don't know exactly what he preached, but we know from verses five and six that he preached. I'm just going to fill in the words because we don't have his message we know it was a gospel message. So I'm going to use scriptures that he probably didn't have available to him. But this is essentially what he said. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. In 1 John 1.8, if you claim that you are not a sinner, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And sin is any attitude, an action, thought, motive, inactivity, anything that's outside the will of God is sin. And we are all sinners. That's why Jesus came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It was some kind of message like that. It was some kind of message of the gospel. And people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He understood the message to go out into Jerusalem, to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And what's the result? Verse 8. Yes, there were lame people who walked. Yes, there were those that were bothered by demons who were freed. But look at verse 8. And there was so much joy in that city. Why? Because we have a lay person who didn't go to seminary, didn't go to Bible college, doesn't have a doctorate, isn't an apostle who risks herself, himself, goes out into the public and tells others about Jesus. Think of Philip. He doesn't have training. The apostles are not even coming. He's on his own. 
but he's spiritually gifted. He's empowered. And we're called to be faithful. The results are God's work. They're God's responsibility. We're called to be faithful. He goes out in a hostile land, uses the spiritual giftedness, probably teaching an evangelism that God has given him. And people come to Christ. And there's joy in the city. And I want to step back and ask myself a couple questions. Am I using the giftedness that God has entrusted to me? Am I risking for the sake of the gospel? And where I work and where I live, where I recreate, is there joy? Because I'm proclaiming Christ. In other words, we shouldn't be like this new band of podcasts and bloggers who are claiming to be Bereans, but all they're really doing is criticizing and damaging the bride. Well, we should be our individuals who are going forth as witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And where we go, individuals break out in joy because they've seen Christ in us, in you. I suspect that's true for many of you. May it be true for all of us. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for Philip. What a model for me. A lot for me to learn and imitate. And there's a lot of these kind of models, positive and less positive, in the book of Acts. And Father, we don't want to just be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We want to participate as witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. We want to value people, love people made in the image of God, not being driven by culture or color or ethnicity, but seeing people as you do, all people needing Christ and needing us to use the giftedness you have entrusted to us to build up your bride and to go outside your bride and to win people to Jesus. Make us into those kind of people we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.